there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Taxi, will you take me uptown? Read the sign, man. I'm on break. Ah, but can't you just... Did that just come from up there? What the hell? Guns are just flying out of windows now. New York just gets crazier and crazier. It's still warm. And only one cartridge in the chamber. You think somebody just got shot? Maybe. You want to get out of here? Take me uptown? Get uptown some other way. I'm taking this to the cops. On November 4th, 1928, a cab driver saw a gun fly through a third-floor window screen of the Park Central Hotel. The cabbie didn't know that the gun had just been used to kill. But by picking up the gun, the cabbie erased the murderer's fingerprints, the only concrete proof of who had just shot the city's most powerful kingpin, Arnold Rothstein. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on Arnold Rothstein, a criminal genius whose penchant for gambling cost him everything. Our guests, Kate and Howell, hosts of ParCast's new podcast, Kingpins, are joining us again this week. Thanks for having us back. Hi, everyone. We'll be providing some context on the criminal underworld of New York City in the 1920s and how mafia ties complicated Rothstein's murder investigation. If you're interested in learning about the rise and fall of kingpins and queenpins, you can check out our show every Friday. And you can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. On November 4th, 1928, as Arnold Rothstein lay bleeding on a hospital bed in the Polyclinic Hospital, the underworld of New York City watched with bated breath to see what would happen next. Back up, back up. Nobody's getting in to see Rothstein, capiche? But we're dating. Hey, he's my man. He'll be nobody's man if people keep trying to interrupt the doctors. You should let me in, though. He'll want me to deal with his assets. His assets will be dealt with in his will. Now get lost, bucko. Have you heard if he said anything about the mayor? Oh, Councilman. I'm sorry, but even you can't come in here. That's fine, but, but has he said anything? 
Nothing. <sighs> Good. People clamored at the doors to get a glimpse of the dying kingpin. Reporters investigating the Rothstein Empire tried to get one last interview with the man. The scoop to end all scoops. Excuse me, son, but Mrs. Rothstein requested I pray over her husband. He may be Jewish, but Mrs. Rothstein is a staunch Catholic. Of course, Father, I'll... Hey, you smell kinda... Yes, I accidentally spilled the communion wine in my rush to get here. Wait a sec, that's a fake beard. You're that reporter from the Daily Mirror. It was worth a shot! Arnold's family stood by his side, his father Abraham going so far as to rewrite his son's past as he died. He told reporters, Arnold has always been an excellent son. I could not ask for a better one. He was not the kind who neglects his parents. As Arnold's family was distracted by reporters, policemen tried to interrogate a barely conscious Arnold about who had shot him. They needed to know but Arnold refused to give up his murderer. According to the book on his life, Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius, who fixed the 1919 World Series by David Petruzia at 10.50 a.m. on Monday, November 5, 1928, Arnold Rothstein died from a single bullet wound to his side, although other sources report that he died the following day. Kate and Howell, the hosts of our fellow ParCast podcast, Kingpins, can tell us more. Thanks, Wendy. News of Arnold's death spread quickly throughout New York's underworld. Gambling, prostitution, rum running, heroin smuggling, labor racketeering, stock fraud, and sports fixing. Arnold Rothstein had his hands in every criminal operation in the city. Arnold wove a complicated web of suppliers and distributors, buyers and sellers, lenders and debtors. He was the bookkeeper, and when he died, the complex criminal machinery he had built began to collapse. People who owed Arnold money now had no reason to pay, and people to whom Arnold owed money now had no way to collect. Those criminals with less respect for Arnold Rothstein ransacked his businesses, attempting to take any valuables they could get their hands on. Old alliances crumbled, and street gangs grew more trenchant in their opposition towards each other. As all this happened, the criminals who had grown close to Arnold Rothstein saw his death as a tragic moment, but also limitless potential. Charles Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky both mourned Arnold's passing. They had studied organized crime at Rothstein's feet, learning to see past the ethnic barriers that most crime bosses propped up within their own operations. With Arnold's death, Luciano gained control of the largest bootlegging operation in New York and most of the heroin racket in the city. Luciano would later use that power to eliminate other Italian mafiosos and take control of Italian crime in the city. He then formed the commission a governing body for organized crime involving crime syndicates all over the U.S., becoming known as the father of organized crime. While Luciano led the Italian mob and bootlegging, Meyer Lansky took precedence over the Jewish mob and most of Arnold's gambling operations. Lansky later opened casinos all across the world, and using bookkeeping abilities that he learned from Arnold, Lansky became one of the most financially successful gangsters in American history. While Luciano and Lansky mourned Arnold's death, 
one of Arnold's lesser known protégés may have had a hand in his murder. This was a man named Dutch Schultz. Schultz was an exceptionally violent criminal who ran the largest Jewish bootlegging operation in New York, along with his partner, Joey No. After Arnold's passing, Dutch expanded his enterprises into fixing the lottery, extorting restaurants, and a war with Jack Legs Diamond, another minor kingpin, and one of Arnold's personal bodyguards. As Arnold's underworld protégés began tearing down and taking over Arnold's enterprises, the New York politicians at Tammany Hall were also stirred into motion. On November 4th, when the news spread to New York's mayor, James Gentleman Jimmy Walker, ran out of the nightclub he was in. What's wrong, Jimmy? Rothstein's just been shot, babe, and that means trouble from here on in. Mayor Walker was right about that. He mobilized the police and other corrupt politicians as quickly as he could. Gentlemen, we need to clear our books as fast as possible. If it's anything to do with Rothstein, get rid of it. If you've got any men who dealt with Rothstein, get rid of them. If you know any beat cops who work with some of Rothstein's establishments, have the cops raid the place for info and dispose of it. At the urging of Tammany Hall, evidence of corruption was purged throughout the city. Of course, Arnold's influence was so far-reaching, it would be nearly impossible for the criminals and officials of the city to eliminate all evidence of their corruption. As for the murder investigation, several pieces of evidence were brought to the police almost immediately after Arnold was found shot on November 4, 1928. Arnold Rothstein had been hanging out at Lindy's restaurant. He received a call at Lindy's, and the waiter who initially answered the phone told the police that the call had come from the Park Central Hotel. Arnold had been found dying in the Park Central Hotel, so this was hardly new information. But the waiter also provided the police their first suspect. He had recognized the voice on the other end of the phone as George Hump McManus. Arnold's bodyguards then corroborated the waiter's story by telling the police that Arnold was going to the Park Central at the request of George Hump McManus. Arnold had told them he didn't need their protection. The police couldn't find George McManus's name in the hotel records, but guests at the hotel soon helped them narrow down their search. Several guests had heard a sound, like a gunshot, come from room 349 followed by the loud noise of drunken guests scrambling to leave the building. Police entered the room to find empty liquor bottles, used shot glasses, and other trash strewn about the room. When they opened the closet door, they found a hand-tailored blue overcoat with the name George McManus sewn into the lining. Peculiarly, no blood or gun shells were found in the room. However, the window was open and the screen possessed a large hole, almost as if someone had thrown something through it. At the same time the room was being searched, a cab driver brought a busted detective special revolver to the nearest police precinct. The cabbie had seen the gun fall from a window in the Park Central Hotel, and a single bullet casing was jammed in the chamber. The surgeons trying to save Arnold's life retrieved a bullet from his intestines, it matched the caliber of the detective special revolver that had been brought to the police. Then, while the police were still searching room 349, the phone rang. Hello? Hey, is this Georgie? Is Georgie there? 
Can I ask who's calling? Uh, never mind. The police never found out who was calling, but it was just one more thing pointing to their lead suspect, George McManus. While this should have made the search for Arnold's killer incredibly simple, things only got more complicated. George McManus came from a long line of New York policemen. His grandfather, his father, and two of his brothers were cops. The McManuses were a respected family, and to those not in the know, entirely clean in their dealings with the people of the city. Of course, criminals and politicians alike knew the McManuses were dirty. They also knew that a dirty cop is more effective if the public believes that they're clean. It was undeniable that George McManus was somehow involved in the death of Arnold Rothstein. And that meant the reputation of the entire McManus family and their legacy as policemen were at stake. A stain on the McManus family could even become a stain on the police force itself. So even if George McManus hadn't pulled the trigger, the police had plenty of reason to obscure George's involvement in the murder. As soon as the officers knew who their main suspect was, they began to turn an efficient investigation into a bumbling one, perhaps even at the behest of powerful public officials. The police dusted for fingerprints on the glasses and bottles in the room, but failed to compare those fingerprints to the fingerprints of their main suspect and their murder victim. For instance, a drinking glass that was dusted had a perfect print suspected to belong to Arnold Rothstein. The police compared every suspect's fingerprint and the fingerprint of every employee in the Park Central Hotel to the one on the glass, but they failed to compare Arnold's fingerprint because they, quote, felt it was unnecessary. Having a perfect piece of hard evidence that placed Arnold in the room where he was shot would have definitely shown that George McManus, who had rented the room, had something to do with the murder. Instead of saying Arnold was in the room, the cops purposely cast doubt on their own suspicions by saying things like, we suspect Arnold Rothstein was shot in this room, although we have no concrete proof of that being the case. Then things got even more complicated only a few hours after Arnold died as one eyewitness came forward with her testimony. The witness was a young woman staying in room 330 of the hotel, just down the hall from room 349. She told the police that she had drank a few drinks with a man named Jack and his friend in room 349 several hours before the shooting. She said she and Jack had been flirting and that Jack was trying to convince her to stay the night with him. The eyewitness said that Jack was quite drunk and that he was dancing, singing, throwing money around, making jokes, really trying to charm her into staying. After being shown pictures of George McManus and his known associates, this eyewitness positively identified Jack as George Hump McManus and his friend as Hyman Biller. Hyman Biller was George's bagman. Bagman is a term used in various criminal enterprises to describe the person who collects the money. For gamblers like George, their bagman was their right-hand man, an enforcer, busting kneecaps if a person refused to pay up. With an eyewitness placing George and Hyman Biller at the scene of the crime, a clearer picture of the night was starting to form. And yet, before George could be captured and put on trial, someone was trying their best to muddy up the waters. Up next, the courts show how easily they could be corrupted. 
Now, back to the story. Arnold Rothstein died from a bullet wound on November 5, 1928, and by the end of the day, police already had plenty of evidence pointing to George McManus as their lead suspect, and Hyman Biller, George's bagman, as an accomplice. The police put out an APB for George and Hyman on November 5th, but George and Hyman proved very difficult to find. Bo Weinberg, right-hand man to mobster Dutch Schultz, had taken George into hiding, setting him up with a hotel room indefinitely. And Hyman Biller fled the country without the police knowing. Of course, George shouldn't have been able to hide that easily. One of his brothers was a lieutenant on the police force, another was a retired detective, and a third brother worked for the court system. When asked by patrolmen if they knew George's location, all of his brothers essentially answered by saying, we'll let George know you're looking for him. That's a cop-out if ever I've heard one. Bo Weinberg successfully hid George McManus until November 27, 1928, when police found him a full three weeks after the murder. Of course, he wasn't exactly found. He turned himself in. The officer in charge of the case received a phone call from an anonymous source that he should be at a certain address at a certain time. When the officer arrived, George McManus sat before him in a barber chair, receiving a cut and a shave. The officer and George knew each other, and after George's shave was finished, George went with the officer willingly. With their prime suspect in custody, the courts convened a grand jury. On December 5th, 1928, one full month after Arnold was killed, George McManus testified in court. It's a real shame what happened to Arnold, but I had nothing to do with it. I rented the room, sure, but after a day of drinking with a lovely lady, I decided to step outside and get some fresh air. I wanted to feel refreshed from the cold air, so I, I left my coat behind. But by the time I was about to head back into the hotel, Arnold had already been shot. Somebody must have called him when I was out because I had no idea he was even there. This was as good an explanation as George was able to give, and it might have worked on the grand jury if the prosecution hadn't procured a surprise second witness. The prosecution had to at least make it look like the police were trying to solve the murder. They brought forward Bridget Ferry, a maid at the hotel who knew Arnold Rothstein. Bridget had seen a drunken George and three other men in the room surrounded by cards, used glasses, and empty liquor bottles eight minutes after the phone call to summon Arnold Rothstein was made. This testimony proved that George McManus had to have known Arnold was on his way to the hotel, and it implicated that George would have been there when Arnold finally arrived. Bridget also identified Hyman Biller as being present in the room. She was unable to identify the two other men with George and Hyman, but her testimony proved there were four men involved in Arnold Rothstein's murder. With this testimony, the grand jury decided to bring the case to court. George McManus was given a trial date of October 25, 1929. However, this court date displeased somebody high up. After calls from Tammany Hall, the court date was moved to November 12, 1929, a full year after Rothstein's murder. During that time, George McManus was released on bail. He hung around New York, continued gambling, and even got involved with gangster Dutch Schultz. McManus stuck by his claim to innocence and went into court confident 
that he would be acquitted of all wrongdoing. When November 12, 1929 arrived, most of the public had already moved on from the murder. Some reporters had stuck around to see the end of the story, but they weren't about to get any closure. The prosecution didn't have much physical evidence to go off, so they called their witnesses to the stand. The woman who had flirted with George stuck by her testimony. They had had a fun afternoon together, and it didn't mean George had to have been in the room when Arnold was killed. Then the prosecution called the Lindy's waiter to the stand. You answered the phone for Mr. Rothstein, and you originally identified the person on the other end as George McManus, correct? No, I said it might have been George. Now, on the record, you said it was in fact George McManus himself who had called Arnold. I have the record right here. Well, maybe I misspoke. There's no way I could have known it was George. The phone had a lot of static. Other witnesses started to change their stories. Instead of hearing gunshots on the third floor, some witnesses started saying the sounds could have come from any floor. The prosecution's case got weaker and weaker. Finally, they called hotel maid Bridget Ferry, their ringer from the grand jury proceedings. Miss Ferry, you said you saw George McManus and Hyman Biller in the room around 10.20 p.m., on November 4th, 1928. Is that correct? No. I said many times George McManus was not there and Hyman Biller was not there. I said I saw them leave the hotel around 9.20 p.m. Now, our records show... Your records are wrong. I saw George and Hyman leave the hotel, and that's all I have to say on the matter. Puzzled by the change in story, a reporter asked Bridget what had happened to her. Initially, she refused to say, but after some prodding... She told the reporter that she had been imprisoned for four months after her testimony at the grand jury. In fact, she had been held in police custody as a material witness, allegedly for her own protection. When she went into police custody, she was confident that George was in the room. When she came out of police custody, she insisted that George hadn't been in the hotel at all. Almost as if she'd been intimidated into silence by a corrupt police department. And just like that, the entire case against George went up in smoke. What should have been an airtight trial turned into an outright farce. On December 5th, 1929, a full year after his grand jury hearing, George McManus was acquitted of all charges related to the murder of Arnold Rothstein. Given the corruption evident in the trial... It's hardly fair for us to say that George McManus definitely did not kill Arnold Rothstein. But then again, he wasn't the only man in the room. In the end, all we actually know is that George McManus was involved in the murder of Arnold Rothstein. We don't know if he was the man who shot him. But who else could have fired the gun? There are three major theories, and all of them depend on who was in the room when Arnold Rothstein got shot. We know that George McManus and Arnold Rothstein were there. We know that George Bagman, Hyman Biller, was in the room. We also know that there were two more men in the room, although we don't know who they were. In the official police report based on Ferry's testimony, these two men were referred to as John Doe and Richard Rowe. The answer to who shot Rothstein could very well be the same as who were John Doe and Richard Rowe. The first theory is the most straightforward. John Doe and Richard Rowe were Frank and Thomas McManus, George's brothers. In this theory, 
George McManus shot Arnold Rothstein, and his brothers helped him cover it up. The second theory has more to do with the rigged poker game that got Arnold shot in the first place. In this theory, John Doe was Titanic Thompson, and Richard Rowe was Nate Raymond, the two men to whom Arnold owed the most money. In an interesting twist, Hyman Biller was the man who shot Arnold at the behest of the other three men in the room. And the last theory has nothing to do with Arnold's gambling debt at all. This theory proposes that either John Doe or Richard Rowe were actually Dutch Schultz and one of his accomplices. In this theory, Schultz bribed George to lure Arnold into the room to kill Arnold as payback for the death of Schultz's friend, whose name was confusingly Joey No. George McManus, Hyman Biller, or Dutch Schultz. Which one pulled the trigger? Of our three potential murder suspects, George Hump McManus was the only one who went to trial for the murder of Arnold Rothstein in 1928. It then also makes sense for us to start with him as our prime suspect. In his book, Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series, biographer David Petruza lays out his theory of exactly how the murder went down. Hey, Hump. It's Arnold. Uh, Arnold, you're here. You've been drinking. We've all been drinking. Come on in. Come in. You know Hyman, Frank, Thomas. Glad you're here, Thomas. Without you here, George is liable to shoot me. Thomas McManus was a retired police detective. Having a police officer, even a former police officer, in the room was a way members of the underworld would guarantee the safety of all involved. It was a fairly common practice at the time because a gangland assassin usually killed every witness to the crime. However, the death of a policeman would result in an immediate crackdown, no matter how dangerous the gangs involved in the slaying were. Thomas's presence could explain why Arnold went to the meeting with no gun and no bodyguard. Arnold felt safe because he was supposed to be safe. I'm just here to play some craps. Or maybe poker. Whatever suits your fancy. Good on you, Thomas. Let's play while we talk. Arnold took his coat off before sitting down. Interestingly, Arnold's coat was the same style as George McManus's. The only difference between the coats were the monograms. After some time playing, George got angry. I like you, Arnold, but you came here to talk about your debt and all you've said. I won't pay. You won't pay. But how about now? Will you pay now? Hey, hey, put the gun away. Listen to your brother, George. You listen to me, Arnold. I'm serious here. You owe me money. You owe money and you need to pay. All right, calm down. I owe money. I feel like you're not taking me seriously. Fine, you're serious. I owe money. Stop pointing that at me. I'm serious, Arnold. Put it away. I just have to show him. How serious? Oh, no. You shot me, you goon. Uh, I, uh, uh. And I'll shoot you again. Give me the gun. The other men present in the room wrestled the gun from George's hands, took the remaining bullets out of the gun, and threw it out the window in a drunken panic where the cabbie below picked it up in the street. The gun's gone. No more shooting. The game is over. I'm going home. Arnold Rothstein stood up and left the room, attempting to leave the hotel. I told him I was serious. Shut up, George. The mook's probably gonna die now. 
Good luck collecting your money then. Wipe up the blood, grab your jacket, and we're getting the hell out of here. As Arnold's pace slowed from internal bleeding, the four men present at the shooting did a quick sweep of the room and then fled the building, each going their own way. George, drunk and panicked, mistook Arnold's dark blue coat for his own. He left the building, and according to Petruza's telling, George called Jimmy Hines, a powerful politician and member of Tammany Hall. Jimmy, it's George. I just shot Arnold Rothstein. What the hell did you do that for? It was an accident. And he owed me money and- If it was an accident, it was an accident. These things happen. Where are you now? I'm going to send a guy to get you. You're going to help me lay low? I'll take care of it. We'll turn you in when we're sure you'll beat the rap, got it? Thanks, Jimmy. Don't mention it. George was picked up by a man named Bo Weinberg, a hitman and mobster who was Dutch Schultz's right-hand man. Bo took George to a secret hotel room where George remained in hiding for several weeks. Meanwhile, Jimmy Hines contacted the police department, informing them to take their time while searching for Arnold Rothstein's killer. The police department was all too willing to make a bumbling investigation. After all, the McManuses were part of the NYPD family, and in the underworld, George was a fairly well-liked gambler. Nobody wanted to see him go down. Jimmy Hines had arranged everything, and when the court fix was in, George gave himself up knowing that he would be safe from any legal consequences. By December 5, 1928, the evidence had been gathered together against George. The district attorney, Joab Banton, indicted McManus, Hyman Biller, John Doe, and Richard Rowe for the murder of Arnold Rothstein. Given that the police had failed to discern the identities of John Doe and Richard Rowe, they were never brought to trial. Hyman Biller would never be brought to trial either. Instead of risking jail time, Hyman Biller had fled to Havana, Cuba, a favored place for gamblers of ill repute to skirt United States law. With only one suspect in custody, the trial was scheduled for October 15, 1929, one year after the murder. However, this date displeased Jimmy Hines and Tammany Hall. An election was happening in early November, and Jimmy Hines didn't want the trial to have any chance of clouding Tammany's chance at maintaining power. The judge in charge of the trial, Judge Knott, was already on George McManus's side. He agreed with Jimmy Hines, and the court date was rescheduled to November 12, 1928, just after the election date. There was plenty of evidence pointing to George as the killer. Arnold Rothstein had been hanging out at Lindy's restaurant the night that he was shot. A waiter and Arnold's bodyguards positively identified George as the man who called Arnold to the Park Central Hotel. Several guests staying at the hotel had heard a loud noise like a gunshot come from the third floor. One young woman staying in the hotel had a few drinks with George McManus and Hyman Biller at the scene of the crime. Bridget Ferry, a maid at the hotel, had seen a drunken George and three other men in the room shortly before Arnold Rothstein's arrival. Arnold's bodyguards recalled Arnold wearing a dark blue overcoat. Arnold had not been wearing this overcoat when he was found. This coat looked suspiciously similar to George McManus's coat that had been found in the room where Arnold had been shot. The murder weapon was a special revolver issued to detectives in the police force. George was known to possess one of these guns. 
The murder weapon also had a bent barrel and busted stock that only could have been sustained from a high fall. The window screen of the room Arnold Rothstein had been shot in had a conspicuous hole. A cabbie had seen this gun skid across the street around the same time Arnold was supposed to have been shot, making it very likely that this gun was, in fact, the murder weapon. And finally, George McManus had the motive. Arnold Rothstein owed money from a poker game George himself had arranged. His reputation was at stake. And if George had been in on the fix, his cut of the profits were at stake as well. And yet, with all of this evidence stacked against him, George McManus's trial turned out to be a farce. Of course, for biographer David Petruza, the extent of corruption in George's trial is only greater evidence that George McManus had been the one who pulled the trigger. But it had ultimately been an accident. Every string in the judicial system was pulled to get George McManus acquitted. The amount of bribing and threatening that had to occur would only have to take place if George had actually killed Arnold Rothstein. And if George had intended to assassinate Arnold Rothstein, Jimmy Hines and other Tammany Hall leaders would be less inclined to help George out. Arnold Rothstein was more their friend than George was, and they would have sought justice for their most prominent connection in the underworld. However, an accidental killing meant no justice was necessary. There is a little more evidence to suggest that the shooting had been accidental. The eyewitness who had been flirting with George said that George was trying to convince her to stay the night with him. If George was planning an assassination, he would never want a woman to both remember his face and stick around for the killing. Additionally, Arnold was only shot once in the side. Gamblers and gangsters don't mess around when they kill someone. If George had meant to kill Arnold outright, he probably would have shot him several times or even just once in the head to make sure the job was done. Assassins and hitmen also take much greater care to hide and dispose of their murder weapons. If George and the others in the room had planned to kill Arnold, they wouldn't have chucked the gun out of the window. That's something only a group of drunk and panicked men would do. To lend further credence to Petruza's theory, Tom McManus was seen with Hyman Biller just a few blocks away from the Park Central Hotel, only a few hours after Arnold Rothstein had been shot. This was odd for Tom because he lived in the Bronx and had no reason to be in Manhattan that late at night. Especially with Hyman Biller, a man who we know for a fact was in the room when Arnold was shot. All in all, Petruza laid out a fairly convincing theory. A drunken George McManus accidentally shot Arnold Rothstein in anger about an outstanding gambling debt. And yet, there are still at least two other possible explanations. Maybe Arnold Rothstein paid for his gambling debt with his life, or maybe he paid blood for blood. Up next, we'll explore those theories. Now back to the story. George McManus may have shot Arnold Rothstein, but there are still two other suspects. Our second theory states that Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond were in the room asking Hyman Biller to shoot Arnold. And our third theory states that Dutch Schultz and an accomplice of his used George to arrange the hit as vengeance for the death of his friend, Joey No. 
The George McManus theory postulates that Arnold Rothstein's murder was an accident, but the Hyman Biller theory states that Arnold Rothstein was purposefully killed over the $300,000 debt he had accrued during that fateful poker game. That night would have looked a little different with the gamblers Nate Raymond and Titanic Thompson taking the place of George Hump McManus's brothers. Arnold, come in, come in. Hey, Arnold, remember me? Yeah, you remember us? I thought I'd be talking with George, not you two. It's a peace talk, Arnold. We're all involved here. Why don't you sit down? I need to know you three aren't packing heat. Nothing here. I got nothing. Same. Good. So, I've already stated multiple times, I'm not paying. Oh, you're paying, all right. Hyman? At the behest of his boss, Hyman Biller shot Arnold Rothstein square in his side. Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond collected on their debts by taking Arnold's life, with George McManus being the man who made it all possible, thus clearing his reputation in the gambling community. This theory hadn't crossed anybody's mind until 20 years after the murder, when Titanic Thompson made a strange, drunken confession to a friend. How about them White Sox, huh? You think they're gonna win the pennant? White Sox? More like Black Sox. They haven't won Jack since Arnold Rothstein neutered him with that fix in 1919. Oh, Rothstein, I forgot about that guy. Hey, wasn't he killed by some Irishman or something? McSomething or other? Ha! No. He was killed by Hyman. Hyman Biller. Who's that? Wait, how would you know? I was there. It's hard to trust a second-hand account of a drunk confession, but there are some reasons to think this might be true. Titanic's story could explain why Hyman Biller fled to Cuba shortly after Arnold's murder. George McManus came from a police family with many prominent political connections. The police would move mountains to protect George, but Hyman didn't have those same connections. How far would the police go to protect a simple bagman? And how much leeway could he be given by other gangsters who might seek vengeance for Arnold's death? Hyman might have thought his best move was to flee the country, and George likely agreed. Further evidence for this theory is the fact that both Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond were living in the Park Central Hotel at the time of the shooting. They had been waiting in New York for Arnold to pay them before they went back to the West Coast. As guests in the very hotel where Arnold was murdered, Titanic and Nate could have easily gotten to George's room without being seen or thought of as out of place. If George's brothers had entered the hotel, they likely would have been noticed as they were fairly well known throughout New York. Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond also had tremendous motive. Arnold owed them $300,000 and he wasn't going to pay. Killing Arnold would send a message to everyone across the country. Don't refuse to pay Titanic and Nate. As George's story got lost in the shuffle of police corruption, Titanic Thompson and Nate Raymond could also walk away scot-free. That theory certainly seems plausible, and yet there's still one more possible explanation for Arnold's death. Everyone in New York knew that Arnold was refusing to pay a gambling debt. If a certain someone could convince George McManus to help them kill Rothstein, 
everybody would think Arnold was killed because of the money. Have a seat, Arnold. Dutch? Shouldn't you be running rum in the Bronx? I'm here to talk. I came to speak with George, not you. What's this about, George? Well, Arnold, you don't pay. But Dutch does. What's that supposed to mean? You remember what happened to Joey No? Yeah, it was tragic. I agree. This, though, I ain't gonna cry about this. Crime reporter Paul Sand first proposed the theory that Dutch Schultz arranged the murder of Arnold Rothstein in his biography of Dutch, titled Kill the Dutchman, the story of Dutch Schultz, published in 1971. Sand contends that Dutch Schultz was seeking vengeance for the death of his mentor and partner in crime, Joey No. This theory only came about in retrospect because most people at the time assumed Dutch and Arnold were in good standing with each other. However, bad blood between Dutch Schultz and Arnold Rothstein had started only a few months before Arnold's death, sometime in the summer of 1928. Dutch Schultz and Joey No ran the largest bootlegging operation in the Bronx. They had expanded to Manhattan and taken control of several neighborhoods near Harlem. However, this expansion came with conflict. Dutch and Joey had been moving in on territory controlled by none other than Jack Legs Diamond. Legs Diamond was an Irish gang leader and close friend of Arnold Rothstein's. Legs had even worked as Arnold's bodyguard and enforcer before taking control of his own bootlegging operations. As Dutch and Joey pushed into Legs's territory, an old-fashioned turf war kicked off with bodies dropping in the streets. Henchmen died left and right, and Dutch and Legs tried endlessly to assassinate each other. Arnold Rothstein tried not to get involved in squabbles between his subordinates, but Arnold had a much stronger connection to Legs than to Dutch. Dutch grew paranoid of Arnold's potential involvement in the war. On October 16, 1928, three weeks before Arnold's murder, the first major blow in the war between Dutch and Legs was struck. Joey! I'll get them back for this Joey, I swear it! Legs Diamond's men gunned down Joey No in a drive-by shooting outside of the Chateau Madrid. Dutch was grief-stricken and filled with hatred for Legs Diamond. It wouldn't be too much of a leap to assume that Dutch also longed for vengeance against the man above Legs Diamond, Arnold Rothstein. Arnold most likely had nothing to do with the murder of Joey No, but the truth didn't matter to Dutch. At the very least, Dutch could kill someone who Legs valued as much as Dutch valued Joey. Dutch waited for his opportunity and looked for someone who had as much a reason to kill Arnold as he did. Then, when Arnold refused to pay George McManus, he saw his chance. Hey, George, I heard Arnold's filching on you. The bastard thinks the game was fixed, but so what? He's got to pay someday. I know that man, George. I worked under him for a while. When Arnold says he isn't going to pay, he's not going to pay. Then what am I supposed to do? You get him in a room with me, and you won't have to do anything. I'll even make sure you're fairly compensated. Won't I take some heat? You're a McManus. You can handle it. Dutch had the motive and the means to make Arnold pay. 
There is even some evidence to support this theory beyond simple speculation. Jimmy Hines, the politician who George called after Arnold's murder, had strong connections to Dutch Schultz. Bo Weinberg, the man who picked George up to take him into hiding immediately after Arnold's murder on November 4th, 1928, was Dutch Schultz's right-hand man. And George McManus received $20,000 while he was in hiding before the trial. The money was supposed to have come from Jimmy Hines in exchange for George McManus agreeing to stay hidden, but it could also have been a payoff for arranging an assassination. Even more compelling, before George was acquitted of Arnold's murder in late 1929, George began working with the Dutch Schultz gang at the behest of Jimmy Hines. George and Dutch worked together to intimidate Jimmy Hines' political opponents, and in one case, George even hired a campaign worker to beat magistrate Andrew McCreary to death. The connections between George McManus and Dutch Schultz were undeniable. And an outstanding gambling debt would have made the perfect cover for a gangland assassination. So we're left with three plausible theories to explain who murdered Arnold Rothstein. George McManus shot Arnold in a drunken frenzy, either accidentally or on purpose. Hyman Biller shot Arnold at the behest of Titanic Thompson, Nate Raymond, and George McManus for an outstanding gambling debt. Or Dutch Schultz orchestrated Arnold's assassination as retaliation for the death of his friend, Joey No. Personally, I think the assassination angle is the most likely. A person as powerful as Arnold Rothstein was bound to make enemies, and it only seems fitting that a former protege would be the one to finally end his life. The connections between George McManus and Dutch Schultz are also too strong to ignore. Well, that's fair, but I think George McManus accidentally shot Arnold in a drunken frenzy. That best explains why George left his jacket in the room, why Arnold felt safe to attend the meeting in the first place, and why the gun was thrown out the window. That seems like a rookie mistake for a planned assassination. Maybe we should just ask Arnold himself. Who shot you, Rothstein? We need to know. My mother did it. You can find Unsolved Murders, Kingpins, and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. We'd also like to thank Kate and Howell for assisting us with this episode. If you enjoyed our discussion of the criminal underworld surrounding Rothstein, be sure to check out our podcast, Kingpins. In Kingpins, Kate and I discuss the biggest criminal masterminds, the empires they built, and the circumstances that led to their inevitable downfalls. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and Kingpins were created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler are a production of Cutler Media and are part of the ParCast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Giles Hofseth and stars Howell Hargett, Kate Leonard, Wendy McKenzie, and Carter Roy. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. 